Good day. I'm Barbara Sibbald, CMAJ's editor of Humanities. Today, we're speaking with Matthew Smith, a senior lecturer at the Center for Social History of Health and Healthcare at the University of Strathclyde. Matthew has written a medicine and society essay for the humanities section entitled Witchcraft, Fad or a Racket, Food Allergy in Historical Perspective. We reached Professor Smith in Glasgow. Matthew, my uh, first question is, I would like to know, what got you interested in the history of allergy? When I did my PhD a few years back, uh, it was on the history of the, the Feingold diet, which was this theory that linked hyperactivity with the ingestion of food additives. And so it was a very controversial theory that was, that was prevalent in the 1970s and 80s. And in order to really understand how that theory was perceived uh, within the medical community during the time, I needed to tap into this huge backstory, which was the history of food allergy. And so the more I looked at this history of food allergy, uh, the more I found it to be really interesting and quite pertinent, I guess, in terms of how we understand food allergy today. Many of the debates that we still read about in the newspapers or hear about on television, they have their roots in uh, debates that have been going on for you know, close to 100 years, if not longer. This project, the origin of it was my PhD thesis, but it's actually uh, that particular article is, uh, comes out of a book that I've written uh, called Another Person's Poison, A History of Food Allergy. So the article is sort of a, a, a summary of some of the findings from that bit of research. Great. What role do you think the adoption of randomized controlled trials in the 1950s had to do with the apparent decline of skin testing in favor of elimination diets in mainstream medicine? Well, the elimination diet became popular because skin testing was thought to be not very effective in cases of food allergy. So skin testing actually predates elimination diets um, as we know them, although, you know, if you go back before, you know, into the 19th century, people were doing elimination diets and have always probably done them to test whether or not various foods are causing them ill health. I think the, the issue, though, is that although skin tests were seen by some physicians as a bit of a strange way of, of diagnosing something, compared to elimination diets, which were very much based on the testimony of patients, uh, where the patient and the allergist work together to come up with a diagnosis, skin testing and then subsequent testing that, that evolved uh, was much more focused on the physician and, and was, was more, quote-unquote, objective in that you, know, you had a biological sample that you could test. You're not just relying on what a, what a patient tells you. So when it comes to um, focus on randomly controlled trials, the issue there, I suppose, is that obviously there is a huge push to get gaining evidence from RCTs in the 1960s onwards. But the problem with that is that it takes away some of the subtlety that you might get out of some, some of the older ways of, of uh, finding out information about your patient. So um, whereas the elimination diet might be seen as fairly anecdotal, you know, th that is, once you start building up 
a large body of evidence, it's not particularly wise, let's say, to just ignore it altogether. And so I think the problem is that, and this 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 really is the problem for allergy more generally, is that the challenge is to balance those two sources of information, the, the information coming from you know, thousands and thousands of patients on the one hand and the information com- coming from laboratory tests on the other hand. That's been the challenge, and I don't think that's yet been overcome. So you're talking about the personalized medicine approach as opposed to the research-based? Yeah, getting your answers who do you get your answers from? Do you get it from patients or do you get them from laboratory readings? And and I think both are valid and, and the challenge is to find ways of, of using both sources of evidence to come up with a satisfactory diagnosis. Do you think there have been any forays in that direction or any positive movement in that direction? There are actually in different areas, I suppose. One of the things I do in, in the book is I make a lot of comparisons between psychiatry and allergy because both psychiatry and allergy have been seen, at least in North American medicine, as being sort of Cinderella subjects. Uh, they, they get a lot of stick, to, uh, to say the least. And often you get, you know, perhaps strange theories uh, coming out explaining why people get mentally ill or why people seem to have these different allergies. Now, what's interesting is that in some, and you, you might argue that in, in psychiatry, you know, that narrative, that narrative approach to medicine would be really important. But similarly, in psychiatry, there's a move away from that. You know, when psychoanalysis ceases to be as as prevalent, and and there, but now they're starting to they're starting to be a bit of a move towards it. Um, you know, narrative medicine and looking at the social context of health and disease is becoming a little bit more prevalent. Uh, the World Health Organization is starting to look into ideas related to that. So I think it is starting to to come back a bit, but you still get, partly because today so much, you know, you can see so much on the internet and so much of the debate on the internet is so polarized and no, no one's really taking the time to really think about things carefully and think think things through, you still tend to get these polarized opinions uh, presented to you. It seems to me that there was this dramatic change that took place at a certain point when previously allergies had been viewed as sort of maybe something that was psychosomatic. Uh, there wasn't a lot of proof around it. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like we had this onslaught of anaphylactic reactions to peanuts in particular, but other things as well. And that seemed to become more prevalent. And it may be beyond the scope of your article, but I'm sure you have a view on it. What do you see as sort of the underlying reason behind the rise? Have you given that any thought? Yeah, it's it's hard not to. I think, I think yeah. two things. is One is that you do find anaphylactic reactions um, going back in the medical literature. You know, they certainly exist, but they are becoming more common and especially with respect to peanuts. I think that's the real that's the real question mark. You know, people have always had anaphylactic reactions to, you know, seafood and eggs and things like that. But what what's what's behind this rise in peanut allergy? And I guess when I say always I'm saying since the term allergy was coined in nineteen oh six. So what's going on with peanut allergy? Well, I think it's really Quite complicated. There's probably a, an awful lot of factors that are involved. Uh, one is simply that peanuts are very, very powerful allergens. You know, the proteins in peanuts 
just happen to elicit very powerful reactions. But on the other hand, you have other things going on. So I think it's fair to say that people's immune systems in the 20th century, partly because we don't have to deal with all the terrible infectious diseases that we had to deal with and in, in earlier centuries, and, and including things like being in, infected with uh, parasitic worms and that sort of thing, our immune system simply doesn't have the same, it, it, it's not trained up in the same way as it was in the past. So that being the case, it's not as able to deal with foreign protein in the way that it might have been able to previously. So that's one thing. I think it's also possible that one of the hypotheses involves the hygiene of current environment. So, you know, not only are we not exposed to infectious diseases as much, we're not as exposed to just dirt and bacteria in our environment as much. And so that's another theory that, that's been, um, been that's been put forth to explain not only the rise in anaphylaxis, but also the rise of other immune system diseases, things like certain types of diabetes and MS and, and, and lupus and things like that. There are other explanations that t- tend to kind of wax and wane in popularity. So there's debates about breastfeeding and whether or not uh, mothers should eat peanuts if they have history of uh, allergy. That, that advice has changed recently. It will probably change again. And there's also some theories linking peanut allergy to uh, things that might be found in certain vaccines as well. So there are an awful lot of possible explanations. My guess is that it's probably a combination of a lot of things. And it's interesting that you mentioned the psychosomatic aspect, because I think that that's actually still something we really need to think hard about. Allergic reactions aren't caused by psychological stress, for example. But I think the idea that psychological stress can either exacerbate or turn one, re- you know, a fairly mild reaction into something that's quite major, that's that's something that's fairly well substantiated, and we don't really understand why that's the case. So all these sorts of different factors need to be explored, and unfortunately, I think in order to start engaging with some of those ideas and really start to figure out what's behind these anaphylaxis reactions, we need to think a lot more open-minded about allergy more generally and and start to overcome some of these debates that have driven people to basically agree to disagree. That's very interesting. I know there's a lot of controversy in that area. Finally, Matthew, I wanted to just ask you, can you tell us a bit about your upcoming project? I understand it's on social psychiatry. Right, yes. So my previous uh, work was on as I mentioned, was on the history of hyperactivity or ADHD. And one of the things that I found when I was researching for that project was that there was this really this untold history of, of social psychiatry, particularly in North America. Basically, what social psychiatry was defined back then in, in the 1950s and 60s especially was basically looking at the socioeconomic uh, contributors to mental health and mental illness. And essentially, it was a preventive approach to psychiatry. The reason I got into it was that not only I was interested in this untold story, but we hear so much about mental health and the, the, the burden that mental illness uh, places on, uh, on uh, today's societies. And yet, there isn't all that much talked about in terms of prevention. You know, you might hear about suicide prevention and that sort of thing. But in terms of 
actually dealing with the core issues that that contribute to mental illness. There isn't a lot of discussion of that. And so this project is partly historical, but it's also trying to uh, push that idea of, of being able to prevent mental illness uh, back into the mainstream as well. So I'm hoping that, that I'm able to do that when I get into that. So that's sort of what you're sort of looking at then in a way is the sort of the determinants of health, but from a psychiatric point of view. Yeah, it's basically the, the social determinants of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the 19, especially in the 1960s, this, this was the most powerful uh, idea in, in uh, psychiatry, especially in the, United, in, in the United States. If you go through the presidential addresses of the, the presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, for example, for two decades, really, from 1950s to 1960s, that's that's the main topic they're interested in. And there's legislation, the Community Mental Health Centers Act, which provides more than a billion dollars to, to fund the, the construction of community mental health centers. But really, by 1980, this is this is passe. No one really knows what social psychiatry is anymore. And it's, it's all about uh, genetics and psychopharmacology. And so not only is, is the history there to, to you know, rekindle some interest in this area, but it's also to, to recognize that actually there were a lot of people talking about this and doing things about this 50 years ago, and yet it fell completely flat. So we also have to learn some of the lessons of those failures, as well as uh, recognize that this is something that perhaps uh, we should be putting some efforts into today. That's excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. We've been speaking with Matthew Smith, a senior lecturer at the Center for Social History of Health and Healthcare, University Strathclyde. You can read his Medicine and Society Humanities essay entitled Witchcraft, Fad or a Racket, Food Allergy in Historical Perspective, online at cmaj.ca. I'm Barbara Sibold, CMAJ's Editor of Humanities. Thank you for listening.